Perhaps you remember a famous quote from John F. Kennedy. The quote is, uh, to forgive your enemies, uh, but don't forget their names. And many of us kind of hold this, uh, perhaps without even thinking about it, that we struggle with giving forgiveness. We um, often feel justified to withhold forgiveness to those who sin against us, and often repeatedly. I mean, forgiveness is an unnatural act. I mean, for the children of Adam, forgiveness does not come naturally. And yet, in our text today, Jesus calls for us to forgive and to forgive without limit. Now, we've been in Matthew 18, as you know. It's been a little short series on on what is life to be like in the kingdom of God. Jesus is looking to the cross. He's looking to the end of his ministry. And he's instructing his disciples on how we're to relate to one another. And it was all kind of precipitated by the disciples saying, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so he begins to explain. That's what we've been looking at these five weeks. Who's greatest in the kingdom? The one that walks with humility. The one that walks in a way that doesn't lead others astray. The one who goes after the wandering sheep. Uh, Someone that's great in the kingdom is the one that's willing to rebuke a sinner that they might be drawn back into the fold. And, and now the last word on greatness is simply this, that the one who is great is the one who can forgive and forgive without measure. Now, it makes sense that it comes after last week when we talk about rebuking this, you know, the saint that's kind of strayed from the path. We rebuke him, he repents, and what do we do? We forgive him. And so Jesus in this Matthew 18 at the very end is going to show us the power of the gospel and how it frees us to be able to forgive those that have sinned against us, and sinned against us repeatedly. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 18. We'll read 21, and the first two verses kind of set the context. And then, and then he picks up and answers it with a parable in 23 through the end, with a little summary statement in 35. So I'll be reading in 21, 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some translations are 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and say, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So just 
let me try to give you three ideas here. The first idea is we're going to look at Jesus giving us a command to forgive. He's commanding us to forgive. And then he's going to give us the power that we need to be able to forgive. And then after giving us the power to forgive, he's going to show us a path forward. And I just want to take out some practical ways we can move toward seeing this in our lives. But let's just look at the command, just the context. Here, Jesus commands us. Notice how Peter picks it up. It says, Then Peter came to him, came up and said to him, Lord. So, so Peter is in, he's responding to Jesus from last week. So Jesus had said, if your brother sins, you go and confront him. And if he repents, then you've won your brother. And if he doesn't, take two more. And if he repents, then you've won your brother. So Peter's thinking along that line. And in his mind, he's thinking, okay, if I go and confront my brother and he repents, then I've won my brother. But if he sins again, and then he repents again, well, then, then what do I do? do? Do I forgive him again? And then what happens if he sins again? And so Peter's wondering, how many times will we play out this cycle where I have to keep forgiving my brother? And I think Peter's trying to draw a line in the sand to know, and we as natural legalists want to know where the line in the sand is. That way I know when I'm in, when I'm out. And he wants to know how many times do I have to forgive him? Now, Peter's actually being a little generous here with seven times. The current thought of the day in Jewish teaching was three times. According to one tractate, one writing, he says, if your brother sins once, forgive him. If he sins a second time, forgive him. If he sins a third time, forgive him. If he sins a fourth time, do not forgive him. You don't bring forgiveness to him. And so Peter's kind of being generous and magnanimous in terms of seven times. Well, then Jesus answers the question. It's a staggering answer when you think about it. He says, no, I don't say seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, infinitely, unlimitedly. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. So this idea of 70 times seven is just without limit. Just like you don't count love, you don't count. Uh, you don't count forgiveness. You don't count mercy. And so th- this is a bold command that, that we are to forgive one another in here without limit. Now, that's the command. I think it's pretty clear. He says seven times no, 70 times seven. So perhaps you're kind of choking under your breath right now, wondering how is this even possible? You're coming up with all kinds of scenarios about how people have offended you and I don't understand the nature of their sin against you, and that may be true. And you're, you're kind of almost hyperventilating over what this may mean as you look at your relationships. Well, let me put some caveats on here just to kind of fence this a little bit so we understand it in context. This unlimited forgiveness that he calls us to give, I don't think applies to matters of state or the laws of the land. You know, to just, to, just un, to forgive unlimitedly towards theft or um, assault or fraud, it, it would destabilize society. It would kind of ruin society. And, and plus, the context is among the brethren, among the church. So I don't think it's speaking about the laws of the land or laws of the state. I think this unlimited forgiveness is really tailored to the Christian who is offended against, and the other man or the woman comes and repents. So it's to the repentant sinner. I I, I think that repentance is a part of this, unlimited forgiving. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, in chapter 18, 
uh, 15 to 20 last week, it spoke about the repentant brother. But even more clearly in Luke chapter 17, in a parallel passage, Jesus says this to his disciples. He, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So repentance is part of this, this unlimited forgiveness, that, that he's coming remorseful, he's, he's contrite, he is sad for his sin. He's not making promises that he won't sin against you again, but he is sad and sorrowful over that sin. And, and what the scripture calls us to is to forgive him, to restore him into fellowship, to treat him as one for whom God has sent his son to die and to give him the possibility of reengaging you in a relationship in Christ. Now, what happens if a person comes to you or they don't come to you? They're not repentant. They sin against you. What is the posture of the Christian to the one who doesn't repent? Well, I think it's an attitude of this unlimited forgiveness. I think we're to be prepared and ready to forgive. So if you are sinned against by another Christian and they haven't yet repented, then I think you're to take the step of unilaterally putting to the side, laying aside your right for revenge, laying aside the bitterness that you may have, and even moving with grace and mercy toward them, even though they haven't sinned, even though they haven't repented, because you're doing this so as to encourage repentance. So you can't have a full reconciled relationship with a Christian who doesn't repent, but you can be postured for that. So that as you move with grace towards them, the Spirit of God moves upon the offending party that he can bring about reconciliation in your relationship. So when Jesus commands us to forgive, He's speaking not about the laws of the land. He's speaking about that interaction between two believers within the household of faith as one repents before the other. But again, when the person doesn't repent, they may be ignorant to their sin. They may be stuck in, in pride and not wanting to. We can still be postured. I want to forgive. I want to reconcile. Remember, forgiveness of God towards us was for our good. Our forgiveness towards them is for their good. We want them restored. We want them to return to the fellowship with full rights among us. So that's the command. It's a steep command. I think we can all agree on that. It's a difficult, it's a cha- even with the caveats, it's a challenge. And he knew that. In fact, if you were to read in Luke 17, the rest of the passage, the very next verse, after Jesus says, if he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him, then the very next verse they say, increase our faith. We need faith to believe that God's going to do this. What Jesus shows us now in 23 through 34, this parable about the power to be able to forgive. And he's going to show us this radical forgiveness by introducing us to a radical king, a radical king. Look at the parable. Let me just kind of summarize it for us. You have this king, and he's sovereign over the land as he calls the servants to, to, to account. And this servant comes to him with a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a Greek unit of money, and it was worth about 6,000 denarii. I know that doesn't help yet. I'm getting there. A denarii was the equivalent wage for one day's work. So if a common laborer went into the field and worked, you get one denarius, singular. One denarius. So a talent was worth about 6,000 of those. So if the servant owed the king one talent, it would take him close to 20 years to pay off the debt. 
20 years. Well, he owes 10,000 talents. So if he were to work off his debt, it would be close to 200,000 years of work. The parable is supposed to almost make us giggle because it's so inconceivable for this man to think that he could pay off his debt. So that's the kind of debt this servant has with the king. And so when he's brought before the king, he's terrified, and, and he pleads for patience like a foolish man, thinking that he could have the time to pay it off. And look at what the king does. The king is radical here. The king, we're supposed to almost be taken aback by the behavior of such a king. It says, out of his pity, he forgives the debt, and he releases the man. Uh, the man didn't ask for that. This is the generosity of the king. The man just asked for time. That's all he asked for, time. Give me time, give me time, I can pay you back. But the king goes far beyond what the man even asks for, what the man even knows he needs. And he forgives the debt. Now, I don't want you thinking for a minute that it didn't cost the king anything. There's a cost with forgiveness. There's a cost with mercy. There is billions of dollars that have been lost. The king had to absorb that debt to grant true forgiveness. I mean, we're supposed to just stop and say, I mean, who would want to be a servant to this king? Who would want to follow this king? This is a glorious king. Who could be so merciful? Any of us? Could we be so kind and gracious? Well, of course, when the disciples were hearing this parable, they would have been struck by the unfathomable mercy of this king. It would be later, after the cross and the resurrection, that they would understand the meaning of this parable. And us, with these eyes of history, look back. It's a beautiful picture, really, of of what we're going to celebrate today in the table. It's a beautiful picture of of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, Jesus Christ. In Scripture, it's not surprising that sin is often equated with debt in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So you have this idea of Jesus coming to pay our debts, that we are unable to make payment to God for all the sins that we've committed against him. And so Jesus is the gift of God for his people that he would pay the debt. God doesn't overlook sins. God doesn't let bygones be bygones. He deals with it, as any just king would do. He just happens to deal with it through the death of his son. Does it shock you to think that Jesus on the cross said, it is finished? Remember some of those last words, it's finished. Now, that was another term from the financial district. It meant paid in full. It's just one little Greek word, but it's paid in full. In other words, it's like you go up and you go to the cashier and and you pay your debt and you give them the money and they take the receipt and they stamp it paid in full and that means you walk out free. Your debt's paid. You're free to go. So when Jesus said paid in full, he said it's finished. He's clearly communicating to the church. I've paid for every, every sin in thought, word, or deed. Sins of commission, sins of omission those things that you're most embarrassed by. All the sins were heaped upon Christ. This is the beauty of substitution, that he who knew no sin, or you could say he who knew no debt, he was totally debt-free before the Father. He took upon himself all of our debt, and he paid it. We see the same thing, that, that idea of substitution in Isaiah 53, we're all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the debt of us all. 
or in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that he who was so rich, for he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, by his taking on our debt, might become rich. This is the absolute beauty of the gospel. That when you see this king, and Jesus is the king. He's the king that suffered to relieve the debt of the servant. It, it's, it's really mind-bending. I mean, if you're a Christian here, uh, this is where our hope is. This is where our hope and stay rest. The, the idea, when you think about this parable... The idea of us being able to repay God back or, or to do something to kind of pay him back seems, well, it makes a mockery, actually, of what the Lord does. Our hope rests in Christ alone. It rests in Christ alone, that he has paid the debt entirely. And what it leads us to, I think the Christian should find within himself or herself this, this welling up of awe and gratitude and thankfulness, just worship knowing that everything that littered your life, every stain that you ever had was put upon him. And God's satisfied with you. There's this worship, a thankfulness, a gratitude. Regardless of what happens to us today, this is a permanent reconciliation with God that will stand throughout the time, eternity past. We have that. We've got to be thankful for that. But, but even, even if you're considering Christianity... Or even if you've, you, you're, you've been in Christianity a while and you're weighted with your sin and you, you don't feel like you can go back to God because of your sin, you don't know that God would forgive you, you've sinned against him in the same sin a thousand times, but look, he's calling sinners to himself. I mean, how many times, over and over, he's saying 70 times 7, we're to forgive each other, won't the Father practice the same behavior? I mean, those of us who are stuck thinking that we've got to address ourselves and, and clean ourselves up before we go to the Father, this parable seems to say that's foolhardy. Sinners can run to God for mercy and grace. He is merciful beyond our ability to understand. He is, he is more able to be merciful to you than you are to actually sin against him. So let's just stop and be thankful for that. This is how we become a Christian, actually, is recognizing that we need what Jesus has provided for us. This is what it means to become a Christian. Is I say, God, I can't do it. Rick prayed it, a humble and contrite spirit. God will not despise. He won't despise us coming to him saying, I'm broken. I'm sinful. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. I can't stop it. And you just see the mercy of God here. You know, you see, uh, it's startling. It is startling. The forgiveness of God can be a frightening thing. We kind of saw a little bit of a glimpse of this, just a glimpse of what is here. There is nothing to compare to this. But this is a small glimpse. If you remember back in October 2 of 2006 at Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, if you remember that horrific scene where a man broke into a one-room schoolhouse, that Amish schoolhouse, and he took hostage uh, those kids. And at the end of that tragic day, uh, ten girls were shot, five died. And uh, as the police broke into the room, 
uh, the man turned the gun on himself. He was married and he had three children. And the Amish community, uh, within two hours, was at the, the uh, man's wife, the murderer's wife. They were at her house, extending grace to her. They were, uh, the, the papers, I read, read a number of paper articles about it, and uh, the father of the murderer was held by one of the Amish men, weeping for an hour. The Amish started a charitable fund for the children of the man who killed their children. I mean, people didn't know what to do with it. I mean, people were writing and how foolish the Amish were. People couldn't, they didn't have the categories for it. 2,400 articles were written in the web uh, a week after that about forgiveness. I mean, it's an incredible, it, it's you, you look at it, and I remember seeing it thinking, I can't believe it. But that's just a glimpse of the fruit of this God that is so merciful. Incredibly. People run to him. He's forgiving. He's gracious for your own sin. Before we ever get to forgiving anybody else, we have to taste of this. We have to drink of God, of so generous and kind to us. So that's what we have, this command to forgive, but then we see the power in the gospel, in understanding what God has done for us. It's the fuel, it's the power for us to forgive. So, so let me, we've talked about the command, we've talked about the power. Let me just speak to you for a few minutes on a path forward. What are we going to do with this, this simple story with profound implications? What do we do? Well, let, me give you, let me give you four thoughts that I'd like you to consider to deal with your, your own um, need to extend forgiveness. Because we all do. We want to forgive our enemies, but we don't want to forget their names. Or as another man said, well, yeah, I buried the hatchet. I just marked where I buried it. So if I need to go back and dig it up again, then I can. Well, we don't want to walk in that way, right? I mean, this is calling for something radical that the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't have the categories for this. So what do we do? Well, the first thing I'd ask you to consider is consider the enormity of your debt. So when you're in a situation... And someone has sinned against you, or repeatedly, or you've got a history with a person, then consider the enormity of your own sin before God. You notice that the servant didn't do that? The servant had the audacity to think that just give me time and I'll pay you back. Now, you can't pay back billions when you work at a denarius a day. You just can't do it. He didn't understand the depth of his sin, and that's why he was so ungrateful to the other servant. That's why he was so ungracious to others. He didn't understand what God had done for him. And Jesus gives us this parable as kind of a mirror to our own souls. This astronomical debt of the servant, is ours less? And how much less? Maybe you have 9,982 talents of debt. But Jesus is saying, this is a picture of humanity before God. Now, we don't look at debt this way. We look at sin and, and we determine the impact of sin by how it affects others. And this is the insidious nature of pornography. <clears throat> Nobody's getting hurt. What's the big deal? Nobody's getting hurt. But, but we, have to, we have to recalibrate. We have to look at sin as to how it impacts God. What's the level of cosmic treason? <clears throat> One of the old Puritan prayers, <clears throat> excuse me, um, trying to draw our minds up to God, 
He says, let me not forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin as in the greatness of the person sinned against. We have to remind ourselves that our sin is against God. And we want to contemplate it. We want to consider it. Now, let me be clear here. I don't want to drive any of you into despair. My intention is to drive you to delight in God. But I think it begins with really understanding the nature of our sin before God that we can enjoy, we can delight in the forgiveness he gives. This is why I think David prays, show me if there is any wicked way in me and lead me into life everlasting. No, then show me my sin. Why? Because it humbles us. It humbles us and it begins to help us consider less the offenses of others against me. In other words, if I fail to appreciate the depth of my sin, two friends that will just join me immediately are Mr. Self-Righteousness and Mr. Arrogance. They both will be there because I'll look at myself as better than everybody else. And then when they sin against me, now I'm really offended because I'm so righteous. And so considering the enormity of your debt before God will humble you and will break you so that the the offenses of others will not trouble you to the degree if you're sitting in Mr. Self-Righteous chair. Now, I, I want to remind you of a story in Luke chapter 7. Remember how Jesus came to the home of Simon? He was a Pharisee. And Simon invites him for dinner. And uh, <clears throat> they're having dinner. And a woman from the town, a sinner, most likely a prostitute, comes behind Jesus and begins crying on his feet, weeping. Her tears are falling. She's drying his feet with her hair. She anoints his feet with oil, and she's kissing his feet. Now that scene, everybody would be like, you know, it's the old elephant in the room. We're not going to talk about it. It's all really awkward right now, but we're not. You can just imagine how awkward that would be. And so Simon in his mind is thinking, he's thinking, what kind of man is this that would let such a prostitute be gentle with him and even worship him like she was? And so Jesus, knowing what's in Simon's mind, again, don't hold your thoughts back from God. Remember, he knows what's in our mind. So we don't have to think that we can hide things from God. And so Jesus says to him, Jesus speaks to Simon and says, let me tell you a parable. There's a money lender, and the money lender has lent one 500 denarii and another man 100 denarii. And the money lender forgives the debts of both. So it's kind of parallel to this passage here. And then Jesus asked Simon, who will love the money lender more? And Simon says, well, the one who had the greater debt relieved. He said, you've answered right. He goes, Simon, I've come into your house. You haven't kissed me. You haven't anointed my head with oil. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't take my sandals off. And she has not stopped wetting my feet with her tears and drying my feet with her hair and anointing my head with oil. And here's what he said to her. Here's what he said to Simon. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. I mean, considering the enormity of your debt is going to help you understand the grace of God, which is going to cause you to appreciate God, and it's going to cause you to see the offenses of others as less than your own sins against God. So consider the enormity of your debt. Number two, consider the 